Last Sunday started normally for our family, at least as normally as life in 2021 under lockdown level 4 can be. We got up and we ate breakfast, we watched church at home together, we went for a bit of a walk and then in the afternoon we watched Wimbledon and we had some scones with clotted cream and some good tea and kind of enjoyed our English roots. And then in the evening, we sat down to watch the president's address of the nation. And for me, you know, as a pastor, thinking about what is to come and gathering as a church and meetings and, and what the next while looks like, I was wondering what would be said and what this would mean for us, not realizing that something else was going on that was going to define at least this next week for us as a church and as a city and as a nation. And probably like many of you, on Sunday evening I started to see the footage and the photos, read some of the story and the stats and the facts of what was happening around Johannesburg and all around Durban. I was seeing all sorts of videos on WhatsApp stories and hearing gunshots from about 7 till midnight. So I stayed up, you know, unable to sleep, not sure what was going on, trying to follow the story until about 2.30 in the morning before I got to go to sleep. And the riots or the protests and the looting over the last week have both exposed and have also caused so much pain and hurt and frustration and anger and division and prejudice and racism and inequality and fear and all sorts of other things in our hearts and in the people of this country. This is a big moment that we're living through right now. So I've been asking God what I should share this morning to encourage us, to be honest with us about what's going on, to help us to focus on Jesus and to help us to live as disciples through this time. So if you can turn to Romans 8 in your Bibles with me, I think I've got something to share with us today. We're probably going to finish up our Eat This Book series next week. I absolutely love what Jamie shared last week about the Bible and practice. thought it was really helpful and really encouraging. And my hope in this Eat This Book series has been that you've been reading the Bible, that you're starting to love it and enjoy it more, that it's becoming more of a priority and a necessity for you, and that as you're reading it prayerfully, you're hearing God speak to you and getting to know Him and His ways better. And more than any of that, that you are loving God. You're falling more and more in love with God as you engage with His Word. But today we're going to be focusing on something else. I've really been toying with the thought of a Romans 8 preaching series. Maybe we'll still do that because this chapter is just all good news, which I think is something that we all need right about now. But the whole chapter is all about what Jesus has done and our position in him and what we enjoy as his followers. So for instance, it starts in verse 1 and says, There is no condemnation, not some, zero, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our objective guilt and our subjective shame over our sin, over the things we've done and the things that have been done to us. In Christ that is washed away, it is washed clean, and we are new in Him. We have a new identity in Him. And you know what? Uh, even when Satan accuses you over the things you do and have done, Jesus defends you always. There's no condemnation in Him. I read this this last week and I thought it was powerful. Satan knows your name but calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin, but calls you by your name. And not only does Jesus do that, but he calls you by a new name. Child of God, son or daughter of God. You're adopted into the family. You're given a new name, a new identity in him. You're not marked by your past, the story that you used to live, the sin that you were involved in. You are marked by and defined by him. You have a new life. 
And on top of that, Romans 8 tells us that we are given the gift of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and empowers us to overcome our old ways, our old sinful ways, and to live the new ways of his kingdom, to live as children of God. The Spirit of God fills us. And then it ends, this beautiful chapter, declaring that there is nothing, not some things, there's no asterisks with small print at the bottom of the page, that there is nothing at all, spiritual or physical, in all creation, nothing you can think of that can separate you or I from the love of God in Christ. Romans 8 is beautifully bookended by this promise of no condemnation in verse 1, and this idea of no separation from God right at the end of the chapter. And for those of us who are Christians, we live inside of the story and inside of all these truths of what Jesus has done for us. It's amazing. I'd encourage you, go read Romans 8 today or this week. It will encourage you with what it means to be in Jesus. But while this chapter speaks about all of the good news, the good things that Jesus has done for us, the, the realities that we live in if we are his people, it's also very real about the fact that we live in a broken and imperfect world. And we see that Romans 8 and the scriptures seem to balance the tensions that we live in so well, that we are both in Christ and in Durban. We're in Christ and in South Africa. And in my Bible, this section from Romans 8, verse 18 to 25, it's got a heading above it that speaks about groans and glory. And that's really the title for this message today, groans and glory, groaning and glory. And I think this helps us to understand the moment we're living through right now. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the, the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope, we were saved. But hope that is seen is not hope, because who hopes for what he sees? Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with patience. This last week, we have groaned over what we've seen in our city and our nation. We feel sad and we feel angry about the state of our country and its people because things are not the way they should be. What's happened this last week is not what should happen. This is not the way it should be. And in South Africa right now, we see so clearly the presence and reality of sin and evil and injustice of both the past and our present, and we groan. We desire the glory that this passage promises us, this, this glory that is to come when God comes and makes all things new. We desire for things to be made right. We desire peace and we desire justice. And we know that one day Jesus will return and bring those things and make all things new. A new Durban, a new South Africa, a new heavens and earth that we will be with God together with him forever where everything is the way it is supposed to be. And we look forward to that day with great hope and desire. But until that day we groan because we know that this is not heaven. Durban is not heaven. This world is not heaven. Things are not the way that they should be. 
And yes, God's kingdom is coming and it's coming inside of us and through us, but it'll only one day be fully realized. And we long for that day. We long for that reality. And as a nation, we groan over our apartheid history. We groan over what in the past has divided and oppressed the people of our country. And that still defines our geography and our economy and our culture and our society in significant ways. We groan over the inequality in our nation. And I'm sure many of you know this, that we have the highest income inequality in the world. The, the highest gap between rich and, world, uh, and poor of any nation in the world. We groan over state capture and the corruption of many of our leaders in the past and in the present. And we groan over the state of our nation, over the unemployment and prejudice and racism and poverty and gender-based violence and, and brokenness in our nation. We, we groan. And we groan over what is happening in our country and our city right now. We groan over this week's news of lost lives and lost jobs and lost businesses. We groan over the impact that the riots and looting are having on us now, but will have on us for many years to come. So we groan now while we look ahead to the glory that is to be revealed when Jesus returns and makes wrongs right and makes all things new. But what do we do in the meantime? Well, I want to start by honoring each and every one of you who looked out for people other than yourselves and your immediate family this week. I want to honor every one of you who messaged or called or reached out to someone outside of your family just to see how they were doing, to send love, to care for them, to see how you could support them, to show the love of God. I want to honor each and every one of you who have given away groceries or, or your supplies or, or money or something to help someone who was at, without in this town. I want to honor those of you who've patrolled the streets at night or during the day to literally love your neighbors in your street or your neighborhood and protect them and care for them while they slept or worked or whatever it was. I want to honor you who have pointed people to Jesus, those around you who've been hopeless and discouraged and negative and scared that you've pointed them to Jesus and the hope that is in his gospel. I want to honor those of you who have waited in long lines to get groceries and thought, who can I help? Who can I buy for? Who can I support? I want to honor those of you who've taken to the streets to clean up after other people have caused destruction and mayhem. And I want to honor those of you who have served our city and our nation in prayer. Not just praying for yourself, but praying for others and interceding, standing in the gap between those who are in need and God and crying out for him to come into that space and bring change. Well done. But for those of you who maybe haven't done any of those things or who haven't known what to do or how to pray, or maybe you've been wrestling with doubts or you felt just angry at God, unhappy to pray, not wanting to pray at this time, Romans 8 encourages us here too. It says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I don't know if you know this, but the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He has been for 2,000 years since he ascended to heaven, and he's been there praying the whole time. Jesus is interceding for you right now. He's praying for you right now to the Father in heaven. I imagine he is praying for Durban in South Africa too. But not only that, this passage tells us that the Holy Spirit inside of you prays for you when you don't know what to pray. 
when you're too tired or discouraged or weak to pray, when you feel too lazy to pray or, or whatever it is that stops you from praying, when you are in that space, the Spirit of God prays for you. And it tells us more than the fact that He just prays, that the Spirit knows the mind of God and the will of God. So when the Spirit of God prays for you, He prays perfectly for you. Isn't that amazing? Jesus praying for you, the Spirit praying for you. I want to encourage you, Harbor City, to pray and to keep praying. To pray in the morning, to pray at night, to pray as you read the news, to pray with the people that you live with, to cry out to God to do things in our city and our country at this time. But for those of you who are struggling to pray, or don't feel inspired to pray, or don't feel like praying, maybe you feel overwhelmed or discouraged or whatever it is, what we see in Romans 8 is that God doesn't give up on us. God doesn't punish our prayerlessness. In fact, when we are prayerless, when we are faithless, when we don't have what it takes to pray, the Spirit of God inside of us groans and prays for us, prays on our behalf, which is amazing. The promise of this passage here in Romans 8 is that our groans, groans over the way things are in Durban and South Africa, and, and our prayer groans, the groans of prayer for change, that those will, be, will go up to God and will be turned into glory. Romans 8 verse 28, we know that all things, not just some things, all things, even riots and looting, that all things work together for the good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. A few verses down it says, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Harbour City, do you believe that today? Do you believe what those verses say? As I preach that truth, I know some of you are sitting on your couch loudly amening because this is such good news. This is amazing what these verses say. But for some of you, I realize that right now Romans 8.28 and verse 31, they might be hard to believe or to accept or at least hard to feel right now with what is going on. With what you've experienced over this last week or, or maybe this last year and a half or, or even longer. So I want to say this gently, but I need to say it because this is what the verse says. We need to have a big picture of God right now. One of the things I, I found encouraging, it's silly, but it encouraged me, is last year, during the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is a sentence I hoped I would never say, but during the first year, one of the guys I follow on Twitter, his name is Trevin Wax. Every single day, he tweeted the same thing. And I noticed this after a while, because it kept popping up, the same thing, the same words. So I scrolled down, and I noticed that every day, for as far down as I went, he had tweeted exactly the same words. Not retweeted, just tweeted again and again. The words, Jesus is Lord today. Jesus is Lord today. I, I haven't heard why he did that, but I can guess. That actually this was a practice for himself, a, a personal habit and reminder every day that Jesus is Lord. No, no matter what we're facing, no matter what's going on around us, you, you know what a bad year America had last year. Trevin Wax is there. No matter what they were facing politically, uh, societally, economically, health-wise, Jesus is Lord today. And it's true for us. Jesus is Lord today. As he tweeted those things, it was a personal reminder. No matter what I face, Jesus is Lord. And as he sent it out there on Twitter, everyone who read his feed would be reminded, actually, no matter what I am going through, no matter what we are going through today, Jesus is Lord. That he is king, that he is on the throne. No matter what happens, he rules and reigns over all things. And he is working out everything, not just some things. He's working everything out for the good for those who love him.
That means that Jesus even takes the worst things, the sinful things, the evil things, the twisted things, the things that we would think are disgusting or perverse or just awful. He takes even those things and he turns them into something good and beautiful for our good and for his glory. Well, we trust him and believe that truth because if we believe it, it's a beautiful truth. I think though, if we face a big problem like the problem we're facing as a city and as a nation right now, if we face a big problem with a small Jesus, then what I've just said will sound very cutesy and limp and trite, kind of like a placebo. You know, placebo is a pill or medication that you give to someone so they will feel better mentally or psychologically because they're taking a pill, but it actually doesn't have any medical ability to help their pain or to make them better. That's what a placebo is. And it's easy to quote this verse as a placebo. Oh, don't worry, God works all things together for the good. I've got to say something. I don't know what to say. I'll say that. Don't really believe it. I don't really believe God works in that way. But, but I'll say it so it's something to say, a placebo. If Jesus is small and problems are big, then the sermon today is not going to seem important at all. It actually might feel just fake. But if we face a big problem with a full-size Jesus the Jesus of the Bible. I don't just mean the Jesus of your own imagination. I don't mean just a Jesus of positive thinking. I mean the real Jesus that the Bible speaks about. The Jesus who rules and reigns over all things, who is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient. All, he knows absolutely everything. Jesus who is not surprised by anything, but who rules and reigns perfectly. The one who loves you and cares deeply about you. The one who is glorious and holy and beautiful. If we see that Jesus, then Romans 8 will give us hope and it will help our groans turn into glory for us to look ahead and to trust at this time. So what do you see, Harvest City? What do you see right now? It's okay to see a big problem in front of us because we have one. We don't want to be fake about that. It's, it's real. Our city, our nation faces a big moment and a big problem. But you also see a big Jesus or a Bible-sized Jesus. Not just the, the Jesus of your imagination, but the Jesus of the scriptures. Do you see him at this time? In Revelation chapter 1, John the Apostle has been arrested and he's been taken out of Turkey and he's been put on the island of Patmos as a prisoner for preaching about Jesus and refusing to submit to the emperor. At that time, a man named Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire, and he was an insecure man, as many tyrants and dictators happened to be. So to compensate for his insecurity, he ordered all citizens and subjects of the Roman Empire to worship him as Lord and God. In Latin, it's Dominus et Deus. He changed the name of the Roman Empire to the Eternal Empire, and he called himself the Everlasting King. I'm sure you're seeing some phrases that come out of the scriptures here. All citizens and subjects were supposed to build him a temple and then go to the temple to honor him. They'd take a pinch of incense, throw it into the fire that was on the altar, and they had to say, to declare, Caesar Curios, Caesar is Lord. Now, for most people in the empire, that wasn't a problem. You know, they were polytheists, they believed in many gods and lords, so to throw another one into the mix, add another god to the pile to serve him to, what harm could it do? But for John the Apostle, for the early Christians, for you and I, we can't do that. Yes, we can honor Caesar, but we can't worship him as God. Yes, we can respect Caesar, but no, he cannot have our absolute allegiance. No, 
For John and for us, there is only one Kyrios, there is only one Lord, and that is Jesus Christ, the one who died on the cross for our sins, who rose from the dead, and now rules and reigns from the right hand of God in heaven. So John was arrested and banished for his defiance of the empire, and he was sent to the island of Patmos, 10 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And you can imagine John standing on the shore, standing on a cliff or something, and looking across the Aegean Sea and seeing the mainland where the churches that he had planted and pastored and loved and served and preached at were, where the many Christians that he had eaten meals with and discipled and baptized and counseled and prayed for were. And he knew that they were struggling. He knew that they were confused and afraid and angry and sad and hurting and surprised and just unsure of what the future held because of what they were facing. You see, while John was on Patmos, Domitian's reign of terror intensified. He'd been persecuting and oppressing the church, but he ramped things up significantly as John went off the mainland. And John's sitting there and he's thinking of the churches that he knows and loves, the people that he knows and loves in all of these cities, Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea and Durban and Johannesburg. And he's thinking of them and praying for them and hoping for God to work in their midst. So what does the Apostle John do while he's on the island? Well, in Revelation 1 verse 10, we read that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. We're celebrating church at home today, watching me on our screens. But he was celebrating a church in prison. He was in the Spirit, worshiping and praising God and praying and celebrating Him and, and living the beauty of the gospel in prison on the island of Patmos. The fact that he was in the Spirit must mean that he was praying in the Spirit praying for the churches, crying out to God for the hardships they were facing. And he was doing it on Sunday. This was church in prison. And as John does this, how does Jesus respond? This is incredible. What Jesus does to encourage John is he lifts the curtain. He pulls back the cover to show John what is happening behind the scenes. John sees the hurts and the pain, the the oppression, all that is going on in the mainland, what what the emperor Domitian is doing, how he's hurting the church, how people are having to submit or, or being oppressed or killed for not. But Jesus lifts the veil and shows him what is going on, the bigger picture of what is going on behind the scenes where he rules and reigns. You see, for for them and for us, What we see in Revelation is that there is more to reality than what we see in the present moment, what we see in the news, what we see in the streets around us. There are things happening behind the scenes that are significant and powerful. So Jesus does that and he gives John this revelation of who he is. He shows a big Jesus to John in the midst of a big problem. Revelation 1 verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet. This isn't just a mystical experience. This is something he hears. He hears a loud voice. And you know what happens? As he responds. You and I have probably heard lots of voices this week. There's there's probably been a lot of voices competing for our attention. I'm sure a lot of you have gotten a lot of WhatsApp messages. You've gotten news on apps or newspapers. You've gotten emails or messages or calls from friends about what's going on, people wanting to talk. I'm sure you've seen videos on WhatsApp and Instagram and Facebook. There's just been all sorts of updates about what is going on, some positive and some negative. Voices everywhere. 
But John heard the voice of Jesus in this moment, and it made a huge difference. And I thought about this. I thought if John had only listened to the voices of the people around him, it could be the other prisoners, it could be the guards, it could be Emperor Domitian himself. Maybe it was the Christians who were scared and stressed out, you know, on the mainland. Maybe it was even well-intending friends and family saying what they thought was helpful, but in fact it might not be. If he'd only heard those voices and he hadn't turned and heard Jesus and seen Jesus, we have no idea what would have happened. If John, in this very difficult moment, had just heard the voices of the people he knew and the news and the statistics that were coming out and and watched the videos that were out there, if he'd just seen and heard those things but hadn't seen Jesus and heard Jesus, he would have never written the book of Revelation. Those churches, those seven churches would have never heard from him, got in this revelation and been encouraged to endure. I wouldn't be preaching this message today. The church over the centuries wouldn't have been encouraged by the revelation of John. And the history of the world would look very different. But when John heard the voice, he turned and saw Jesus and he listened to what Jesus said. And he allowed, now this is very important, John allowed Jesus and his words to define him and his response to what was going on. He wasn't defined by what he saw. He wasn't defined by the other things that he heard and the things that were going on around him. No, he was defined by Jesus and his words. And this is what he sees as he turns. Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. There's a lot going on in these verses, but I just want to highlight two truths to us as we end today. Firstly, when John turns and sees Jesus, he sees him walking among the seven lampstands, which represent the seven churches that are on John's heart just across the sea. Now notice Jesus is not above the churches looking down on them. And he's not outside of the churches looking in, but disconnected from their reality and what they're going through and what they're feeling and experiencing and all of that. No, Jesus is among them. He's right in the middle of the churches. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's with us in the midst of what we're going through. He knows, he sees, he feels, he he experiences. He's with us in the midst of all of these things. So as he shares messages with John to give to each of these churches, which really are messages for us too, He's able to say, I know. I know what is happening in and among you. I know your hard work. I know your struggles. I know your fears. I know your pain. I know. Jesus can say, I know to you and to I because he's here with us now. He says the same to you and I today, Harvest City. I I know. I know your prayers. I know what you're feeling. I know your fears. I, I know. Because he's still among his church. His presence is with us. He sees and he cares and he knows. And we get to see this image here in Revelation 1 of a big Jesus that encourages John and us to changes how he sees and responds to everything else going on around him. Secondly, in verse 16, 
we see that this Jesus that he sees is holding seven stars in his right hand. Now, in the first century mind, that was significant. Seven stars represented the seven planets that were known at that time. People thought um, at that time that all of what happened in life was controlled and swayed and moved by these planets. So people were anxious. They, they would seek the kind of astrology tables looking for answers to their questions and needs. The Roman emperors also, you know, kind of asserted their supposed cosmic rule by putting images of the planets and stars around their thrones. And for the Greeks and their religion, they had a goddess named Hecate who held the stars and called herself the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. And what I love here is that in this revelation, Jesus is giving John and John is giving us this counter image, you know, of, of the way things appear to be. This alternate vision of what is really going on. He's showing us behind the scenes of the way the world looks and the way everything appears. He's showing us that Jesus is the one who is among his churches and who holds the seven stars, the seven planets in his hands and rules and reigns over all things. You see, Hecate doesn't hold the stars. Caesar or the Roman emperors, they don't hold the stars. Jesus alone holds the stars. And the planets aren't the ones who control what is going on in our world and our lives. It's Jesus who is in control over everything. Even the, the struggles that John and the churches are facing, he rules and reigns over all of that too. Jesus is Lord. And John is reminded that whatever it looks like across the sea on the ground, whatever it is that the churches are facing, whatever he might hear from the churches, whatever is going on, good or bad, that Jesus is Lord over everything. Everything. Jesus is Lord over everything. And that the universe is held together by him and in him. And Harvest City this morning, I want to say, as we groan about what we see happening in our nation, as we groan about what is going on in our city, as we face the hardships of life in this broken world that we live in, we also look ahead to future glory and to the hope that is still to be unveiled when Jesus returns. And we look up to Jesus, our King, who is able to make all things work together for good for those who love him. And we continue to believe in this and live out the reality of these words even in the midst of the hardest moments. And we say to ourselves and to one another, and we live in this truth, that Jesus is Lord today.